one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. It's our eve of eve of season. Irish Times second captain's football podcast for two days from the start of the new Premier League campaign. As we record, I saw Bill Simmons tweeted last week about the new NFL season. He said, it's good to have the NFL back. I didn't realise how much I missed PED suspensions, hypocrisy and consistently atrocious leadership. It's easy to be similarly cynical about the Premier League, but I'm going to resist that tempta- temptation at least until after the opening weekend. Ken, we may as well cling to our wide-eyed optimism for now. I think so, Owen. I mean, uh, you know, it's a bit like um, the Irish national poet Garth Brooks said, you know, I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the dance <laughs> so unless we uh, accept the Premier League season into our hearts with starry-eyed optimism you know we've no chance of experiencing the feelings of euphoria and elation um, you know cheapened as they are by by um, you know mediation through this this horrible uh, global media apparatus that's grown up around the Premier League um, you know, we we can't we can't we don't have access to those feelings unless we give in to the Premier League, at the at least to to begin with, and then um, you know once we're back in the in the midst of it, we can look around and you know the stench will start to rise and we'll start to complain about it then. Actually, I'm going to do a bit of complaining about it now. I mean, you're the one who you're you say you're optimistic. I'm just here to provide a little bit of a counterbalance to that. Why? What are you going to be cynical? About? Oh, I don't want to do it right now. Right, it spoils okay. my order. But yeah, there are a couple of things. <laughs> there are a couple of things to complain about here. All right. I, I, what I would like to say is that I do enjoy the opening weekend of the season, realizing that transfers have happened that you never heard about. Particularly, you know, I suppose in this day and age, you should hear about all these things. It's it's probably part of my job to be on top of it, Ken. But the World Cup is on. A lot of stuff happened during that, and I'm pretty sure there's going to be at least two or three occasions over the weekend, maybe more, where I go, "Oh yeah." This is incredible. Cesc Fabregas plays for Chelsea. This, this is crazy stuff. Yeah. Or maybe slightly more obscure transfers than that. I was on top of that one, thankfully. Yeah, it is, it is a, little bit, a little bit difficult to keep up because there were a lot of uh, moves this summer 
Um, we will, I, I hope. I also find, I just found during the World Cup, I didn't really care about the transfers that were happening during the World Cup. I just only cared about the World Cup at the time. Yeah. Immediately afterwards, transfer news became a lot more interesting. Time now for Kennedy's Report on Sport. Oh, I never said, I never told people what we're talking about later. Miguel Delaney uh, on Chelsea's favouritism in a lot of people's eyes. And for something a little bit different, we're going to talk about a new book called Danish Dynamite. Yeah, I mean, this book actually came out just before the World Cup, which I didn't have time to read that. It was quite a busy time, but I read it there during the week and it's really good. Um, it's uh, uh, by Rob Smith, Lars Eriksson and Mike Gibbons. Uh, Rob Smythe, I should say. Anyone who knows Rob's work uh, will know that he's a, a writer who really gets the game. And uh, he's always had an interest in this Danish team and uh, has put a lot into the book. And it's a really good read. So, so it's a Danish team of the 80s in particular, a kind of cult. Elkjar, Lerby, uh, Laudrup, Olsen, uh, these great players who, um, you know, were they were <laughs> they never won a knockout game in a tournament. And yet they were the best team in the tournament. Everybody, everybody who watched the tournament was like, they're the best team. And it just didn't quite happen for Despite them. Despite getting end. dumped out 5-1 by Spain and all these kind of things. And they right. ultimately did win the Euro 92, but it was a different team. It, well, that's not the team that this book is about. Would you like that to kick off? That was a sort of successor team playing a completely different style. Would you like to kick off by giving us your top four for the Premier League this year? Well, I, I don't think this is fair, Ron. To be honest, I'm not, I'm not happy to have to do this. Because we don't know the top, we don't know the teams yet. The squads aren't finalised yet, so there could still be changes. I mean, if you're looking at the way that it is now, I'd have to say Chelsea first, mm-hmm. Arsenal second, mm. Manchester City third, and Manchester United fourth. No Liverpool in there. Well, Liverpool. Given that I was saying all last season that I thought Luis Suarez was a key player, Liverpool was really the kind of magic ingredient that was making it all tick. If I was to turn around now and say, well, I think Liverpool will emulate their success of last season, I don't want to suggest that I'm, you know, consistency, foolish consistency, I want to hobgoblin of little minds. And I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't wish to be bound by my own, uh, you know, the, the hot air that I've spewed in the past to dictate what I, you know, the mistakes I've made in the past dictating that I make further mistakes in the present. But... I do think he'll be difficult to replace. I mean, they've signed they've signed a lot of players. Uh, you know, they've they've still got some excellent players, and the likes of Coutinho and Sterling are, you know, have done really well in preseason. Uh, I mean, I saw their game against Borussia Dortmund, and it was fantastic. I mean, they it was the same type of football that they were playing last season. There was no Luis Suarez there, so maybe they can. You know, maybe they can. But I think with all those new players arriving, it's going to take a little while for them to settle into that I don't know if they can necessarily pick up where they left off and they've also got the Champions League as well What's your reasoning for Chelsea at number one? Because I don't think Chelsea have any of the problems I've talked about with Liverpool I think they've improved their side I mean although I, I, you know I mean they sell David Luiz I know everyone was saying well Jose, there was all these pictures of Jose Mourinho on Twitter laughing when David Luiz you know um, had that meltdown in, in Belo Horizonte and it was probably the worst game of football anyone's was ever played and everyone was saying, well, what a genius he was. So I think David Luiz is actually a good player for Chelsea. Nine out of ten games he played for them, he was good. And he was also a versatile player who could play a couple of different positions. I don't think selling him improves their squad. No, but they got good money for him and they spent that on Fabregas and others. It's improved their balance sheet. I mean, they're still in credit. They've, they've, I think they've uh, spent about five million less than they've... Um, 
taken in, in uh, sales. So I wouldn't be surprised if they signed someone else. I know they talk a lot about financial fair play, Chelsea, and, and Mourinho was saying, yeah, I'm happy with my squad, but I still wouldn't be surprised if he waits until transfer deadline day, sees uh, a rival who desperately wants to sign somebody and takes that player, uh, just as happened last season with uh, William. It does highlight the ridiculousness of the transfer window and when it ends. I mean, the fact, that I saw Gus Poe yesterday in Sky Sports News speaking from the launch of the Premier League and he it was one of those strange interviews where he says something and this kept happening during the five-minute interview. He said something and then the presenter would ask him to say what he had just said, essentially. So he said, yeah, basically this is ridiculous that that the, the window is still open now. We have the first week of the season and mm. I, I know other managers feel the same as I do, that it's, it's kind of crazy and it just isn't fair on us and isn't fair on the players. So we need to change this. So are you saying, Gus, that this needs to be changed? Yes, yes, I believe. And maybe that's just me. This was happening quite a lot. But you're in the Gus Poyer camp, Ken. It makes it easier to predict who's going to win the league if well, it they should, it set up this window open. It should be. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, it, it should be, you know, uh, compressed a little bit. I don't really see what the... I don't really see that that would create a problem for anyone. I mean, what if it, if the transfer window finished at the in the middle of August? I mean, the problem, I suppose, is that not all seasons start at the same yeah. time. Um, so, they, you know, they leave it for that reason. But it, it's, it's not great. Um... Now, I have put Manchester United there at number four, um, which might seem, you know, what 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 have I said? And this is the this is a big question I have. What's the change going to be in their squad? Because if this if this is the squad that they start the season proper with once the transfer window is closed, I'll move them down that list a little bit. I don't think they will finish fourth with this squad. Um, and this is why this is why I'm wondering what's going on, because why have they not? Okay, a couple of weeks ago. Edward Woodward, the uh, chief executive of Manchester United, uh, was boasting about how much money they had. The reality is we're not afraid of spending significant amounts of money in the transfer market. Whether it's a record or not doesn't really resonate with us. What resonates is an elite player that the manager wants who's going to be a star for Manchester United. Uh, of course it's in our capabilities to break the world transfer record, he, he said. Um, so, you know... There is no budget. We are in a very strong financial position. We can make big signings. You know, so he's he's bragging and boasting about his um, his uh, his ability to sign to to throw money around. Yeah. So why have they not got anybody? The only guys they've got are, are guys from that they were trying to get last season. Well, maybe it's in part because he was boasting about how much money he has to throw around. Therefore, the price of any potential targets went up by about twenty percent. Doesn't, Doesn't matter if the price went up twenty percent. He'll, he'll pay an extra thirty <laughs> percent. He'll throw a five percent on top of that just to just to show how much money he's got. Because. It doesn't matter. I mean, Manchester United are swimming in money at the moment. They've got a deal coming up with that Adidas, which is going to start seventy-five million a season. Seventy-five million pounds a season from Adidas, guaranteed. They're getting eighty million dollars a season from General Motors for their new hideous shirt sponsorship. You've seen? Have you seen the shirt? No. Oh, oh no, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. I mean, it's 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 the worst I've seen. A, it's a it's like a gold metallic blob on the front of Manchester United's red shirt. Mm. It's really, you know, but at the end of the day, that's $80 million a year in the bank. So they'll put up with it. Um, you know, so if I'm the Glazer family, I'm thinking this guy, Edward, Edward was doing an amazing job. This is the best. This guy is the greatest operator in the, in the history of, of British football. And I would imagine that from the owner's point of view, his position must be bulletproof, surely. 
But David Moyes has spoken a little bit about how his he would confess only to mild disappointment, you know, a certain sense of frustration, that somehow or other, Manchester United didn't manage to sign anyone last summer apart from Fellaini the last minute. They didn't quite manage to put in place the signings that he would have wanted and that that slightly undermined things at the beginning of the campaign. David Moyes, however, is such a... He's a kind of a, a decent man, a loyal man, that he took all that and swallowed it into a big black bolus of bile that he swallowed down into his stomach and nursed it there, um, burning, you know, the walls of his stomach. But he was a good man. He wasn't going to throw his chief executive under the bus. Edward would sack that man. <laughs> and he's hired Louis van Gaal, who I don't think is going to be necessarily quite as backward and coming forward as David Moyes was if he doesn't get the players that he wants to get in the, you know. I mean, you know, Man United have this uh, this, this great vibe around them at the moment. Everyone's saying, oh, it's great. And the players are winning all their preseason games. Um, even Fellaini, who, by the way, was barracked by the crowd at Old Trafford, which I thought found a little bit. Yeah, I don't think that's great. You know, a preseason game, they're, they're cheering him whenever he manages to make a pass. Then he stuck one in. Stuck, stuck one in, so they won that game as well. They've won all these games uh, in preseason in some in some style. Players playing well. Everyone's enthused about the new manager. He's really centred the club. Uh, he's brought a, a sense of, yeah, this guy really knows what he's talking about. And he keeps, not least because he keeps telling us. And he's a dictatorial kind of a figure. But players like that. Mm. Players like, I think especially in England, players actually like a strong man. What was Sideshow Bob say? You want a cold-hearted Republican to... Uh, to cut taxes, brutalise criminals and rule you like a king. Well, that's what English players want. I mean, I know that most of the players are, are foreign. Uh, I don't know if most of them necessarily are foreign at Manchester United. But I think, you know, that, that's what they were used to with Ferguson, guy who was the centre of authority. And players kind of like a manager who's demanding, who's bossy, who tells them what orders them around. Do employers like a manager who does the same thing to them, <laughs> treats them, like you know, who who bosses them around and, and tells them off in public when he doesn't think they've come up to scratch? I'm not sure. Not a lot of employers actually like that from their employees. But that's what Louis Vuitton will do. Uh, that's what's going to make his uh, his time at Manchester United very interesting. And probably means it won't last that long. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the team could potentially play quite well. But he will, I'm 100% sure fall out with the people he's work he works for because that's what always happens you know he because he, because he's he's not a guy there's always going to be a problem in any in any company between you know any manager is going to have problems with his chairman it's been always been the case you know even these all powerful managers shankly you know these guys who who incarnated the club they were still more or less they were they still had to do what the chairman told them to do not necessarily what they told them to do they had to abide by certain limits on their power ultimately they weren't the ones in control there was all kinds of internal problems but they didn't necessarily go and make them public problems which Miguel does have a history of doing which could make things very interesting for Ed Woodward he might find himself missing some of the aspects of of uh, David Moyes there have been a few there are a few strange stories going on a lot of it has got to do with in terms of transfers that may or may not be made and, and some that have been made but a lot of it has to do with third party ownership which is something that I'd say the Premier League would like to see the back of but unfortunately as long as they're buying players in who are there's so much they can do about the players who are outside of their league I mean they can ban 
third party ownership within their clubs all they want, but it's um, it's rampant elsewhere and it seems to be causing a lot of issues. Well, there's a ton of money. This is this, this is where it all starts. There's so much money in the Premier League at the moment. Um, this television deal has come online. Everyone's throwing money around. Shane Long, 12 million, you know. You see all these Southampton fans going, 12 million? But he was only 7 million, you know. Sure, he was, but a couple of things there. Southampton have sold 100 million pounds worth of players. Everybody knows they've got some money. I mean, they've bought 65 million. It's, it's interesting. It's just a massive turnover of players at Southampton. I wouldn't expect them to be as good this year as they were. But also, everybody knows they've got nearly 50% more TV money. So the players are suddenly costing 50% more. You know, and, and Shane Long, uh, I mean, I hope, he, I hope he does well. I mean, the transfer hasn't yet been confirmed as far as I know, but I hope he does well there because it's the first time maybe that he's moved with a, with a big fee and a bit of skepticism around the fee, you know? It's a case of people have always been willing to say, oh, Shane, you know, works his socks off. Look at that. I found the reaction interesting even on Twitter. A lot of Irish people were focusing on the fee rather than the idea that this could be a good move for Shane Long, which, is, yeah, fair enough. It is really strange how these fees work and how suddenly the value goes up. And as you're saying, there's added pressure now if there's already a slightly sceptical Southampton fan base. But at the same time, he's a, he's a decent Premier League player who will probably never be a massive goal getter no but could hopefully do well and, and continue to do well for the club but that's slightly away from the third party issue yeah talking. no it's, it's got nothing to do with the third party issues there. I don't know if it necessarily is a good move for him I hope it's a good move for him financially because I don't think in a football sense it is a good move for him I think that he's in a decent team there at Hull or kind of a team that suits him mm. um, playing with teammates that suit him but you know at the end of the day he's a professional and <laughs> I don't want to say the aim of the game is to make as much money as you can but that is an important part of being a professional football player. You do want to ensure it's a short career. Yeah. Um, but no, the third-party ownership thing actually brings us back to Manchester United, who have apparently bid for Marcus Rocco, the uh, Argentinian left-back from the World Cup, now a player who can play um, in a centri- as a central defender. And maybe this is why Van Hal is interested in signing him, because he's a guy who can play as the left side of a three-man, uh, on the left side of a three-man centre defence. I must say I'm not, I'm not hugely impressed with him as a footballer. Yeah, he was pretty good in the World Cup. Mm, I think he was, he was, I thought he was okay. I mean, you know, I don't think he's anything special. I mean, 15 uh, million is what they've bid, but um, his club, uh, Sporting uh, Lisbon, have said, no, they're looking for more money. But the thing is, 16, 16 million, I should say, that they've bid from 16 million pounds. Now, uh, they've said, no, we, we think he's worth more. Uh, they want to sell more. But the thing is that they don't actually own him. Um, he's owned, 75% of him is owned by a company called Doyen Sports. Um, so Doyen Sports are saying, what do you mean you're not selling him for 16 million? We want our 12 million. 75, you know, 75% of 16 being 12 million. What are you talking about? That looks like a good bid to us. And uh, uh, they're, they're making the point that if it wasn't for Doyen Sports... You, he wouldn't be a sporting distance player in the first place because they were the ones who helped the sporting sign him from Spartak Moscow a couple of years ago. Um, so sporting are now, sporting are kind of saying, we have just caused to terminate our agreement with Doyen Sports. Um, I don't know. They're looking for more money, essentially. But what they're, what they're saying is you can't, you're not allowed to interfere. You're a silent partner here. You're not allowed to tell us you have to sell the player now if we don't want to sell him. But they're saying, oh, hang on a second. We don't think you understand. We want our 12 million pounds. So this is a kind of a... You know, this is not a great situation. I mean, it's, it's something that you see happening a lot in Portuguese football. I mean, it seems to have been the case with this uh, very interesting transfer of um, Mangala 
the central defender from Porto to, to Manchester City. Again, not fully owned by the player they signed him for, the, the club they signed him from, Porto. So City said that this, they, they've, spent, they've signed him for £32 million. The thing is that Porto have told the Portuguese Secur- Securities Market Commission that they received £24.4 million for the share of the player that they owned, which was just over 56% of the player. Mm-hmm. Now, if £24.4 million is 56% of the price, the full price is not £32 million. It's a, it's a lot more than that. It's more like 42 million. Yeah. So um, the other people who owned a share in this player are Standard Liège, who, who had a 10% sell-on clause, so they would get, you know, 4.3 or whatever. And George Mendes, the agent who owns a lot of <laughs> big players. He's had a good summer, George Mendes. James Rodriguez to Real Madrid, Diego Costa to Chelsea. You know, there's tons of these uh, transfers that he's been there at the heart of. Uh, and his uh, share, once you take away Porto's share and Standard Liège's share, uh, would be a third of the player, which would be fourteen million pounds of this forty-two million pound deal. So you're saying thirty-two million, but if fifty-six percent equals twenty-four, then it's more than thirty-two million. So these are the kind of things which, I mean, there's obviously a lot. Number one, there's a lot of money flowing flowing out of the game into the pockets of people like me. You could argue Mendes is part of the game now, but he's not. He's not a football club <laughs> you know he's not, not yet he's not a grassroots football uh you know but you know uh and then you've also got the fact that the, the destinies of players are being decided by people who aren't the players or coaches who want to sign them or clubs who want to keep them but by outside financial entities well, this is you know who are seeking yeah. to make money yeah and this is a separate issue again from the agents you know what you always hear the, the word agent is almost a dirty word in football. It's like money goes out of the game and in and lines the pockets of the agents. Now, I mean, of course, there can there can be um, agents. Maybe you aren't uh, totally scrupulous, but if I'm a club, if I'm a big club now and I'm trying to buy some of these players who you're talking about, you need so the agent is actually the person with the expertise of how they who they have to go to because it's not as straightforward as just we contact the press secretary or I mean the club secretary of Real Madrid and sign the player it's we have to actually find out who owns them how do we it's almost, it seems to me like you have to do about two or three different deals to sign a player now. the agent is the person who's deciding where the player goes mm. that's what that's what actually what the situation has become it used to be the case that the agent would be like oh you know he'd, he'd try and drum up a bit of interest and maybe you know see what see what deals were available and give the player a bit of advice now the club has to has to make it right for the agent it's like how can we persuade you to give us your player? You know what I mean? Huh? I'm even talking though about agents acting on behalf of the, of clubs. You know, the, yeah. uh, of, of the buying club. Yeah, uh, which is a different, again, a different dynamic than, to what they're used to be. Yeah, you need to you need to do you need to build these relationships. I mean, I suppose that's why Jose Mourinho spent so much time hanging out with George Mendes. What was that was story some, again? The, then last year was it uh, the line in the Diego Torres book um, was that uh, the Real Madrid players got so used to the sight of George Mendes hanging out at their training ground that they wondered if Mourinho <laughs> had given him an office there. Uh, basically, does he work here now? You know, he's here every day. But Mourinho would have him hanging out, hanging out all the time. Would be sucking up to him and would be uh, aggrandizing him in front of the players, going, "You know how much money this guy has." You know, in a way that he thought would impress the players, but actually disgusted them. Do you remember that story last year? Was it a bunch of lawyers who claimed to be acting on behalf of Man United? Was it? Were yeah. instigating some deal and well, I think it was. It wasn't so much that they claimed to be acting on behalf of Man United as United later denied that they were right. acting on behalf of them, okay. which, which in fact it appeared they were. <laughs> May have been, right. I mean, they did. They did ultimately sign the player. They were there trying to sign Ander Herrera, who is a player they have since signed. Okay. So 
I think that was actually a very quick one on Frank Ribery retired from international football. Yeah, Ribery's retired from international football, um, following hot on the heels of Samir Nasri. So a couple of big players leaving France, which is comes as a bit of a surprise to me, really, given that the Euro 2016 is in France. And what better way to end your international career if you're Frank Ribery? He'd be, he'd be, I think, 33, then 32 or 33, then playing for France, even even if it was only as a you know, an older player, um, even if, even if it wasn't necessarily as the main player in the team as he arguably could have been at the World Cup or would have been. I mean, you know that when he when he pulled out of the World Cup, you see he had a back injury. The French doctors were like, we think he could have played. They said, yeah. yeah, we had a look at his back and we didn't think it was all that bad. But he didn't like, and he, so he, he gave a few quotes uh, to Kicker magazine in Germany uh, saying he, essentially they asked, are you tired of fighting against negative perceptions of you? Ribery's been in and out of court. He had this, um, he, he was charged with soliciting an underage prostitute, for instance, which caused a bit of a scandal. He was acquitted of that, of those charges. He said, you could say that. If you're under such close observation like me, you play a different type of football. In France, a Ribery did not have the right to make mistakes. They only look at what went wrong. Nothing was excused. Uh, it says it's different in Munich. Essentially, they let him be himself. Whereas in France, they're always just, oh, you need to behave. Um... And uh, I'm just a little, I'm a little bit surprised, really. I suppose maybe Ribery feels physically that he's not what he was. And in order, if he wants to keep playing at the level he has been for Bayern, maybe he needs the breaks now. Um, but, you know, with that, with, with the prize of, of the Euro 2016 on the horizon, he's, he's willing to give that up. I, I think maybe, uh, maybe there's more to the story than anyone's letting on. That's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. Hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Miguel Delaney joins us. Miguel, you're heading to Jose Mourinho's press conference tomorrow ahead of the start of the new season. Are you expecting him to be as confident as Ken here and everybody else is about his chances? A lot of people are tipping Chelsea up. Yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, he's actually kind of uh, wavered a little bit. I mean, if you remember last season, the message throughout the entire campaign, I, I did a piece in the last week for the Independent on Sunday, but the amount of times he said it, he said it after big wins, after big defeats, kind of at every single mundane press conference in between, that next season will be stronger. And to be fair, although he's continued that into the summer, he has kind of there was a little bit of a shift in emphasis um, over the last few weeks when he was saying, "Oh, I expect to be a very competitive Premier League again," which I think it will be. To be fair, but I suppose this time there's uh, there's going to be kind of no excuses or explanations allowed in the same way there were last season, and I, I would expect them to be um, strident, if not overly so. They were excuses last season, though, Miguel, from from the very beginning. I mean. What's your assessment on how on how much better the squad is? Because Mourinho is saying things like, "I love the club, I love the club," because they gave me the players I want, and, and talking about the potential of the squad, and, uh, and and certainly in a way which seems to accept more responsibility this season. You know, he seems to be talking in a way that says, "Okay, my squad is good enough. My squad is good enough to win the league this season." Um, do you think it's substantially better than it was, though? Uh, I, I think it is, I have to say. Uh, one thing, I, I agree with you about last season. I, I mean, ultimately, it comes back to those games against Sunderland and Norwich and West Brom all at home. And for all Chelsea's issues, they should still have been good enough to win those games. And winning those games would have put them right up there on the last day and, you know, possibly able to tilt the title their way. 
Um, now, well, I, I, that's not to say there, there can't be improvements. And to be honest, I do think they've, they've improved across the board. I mean, Felipe Luis makes the uh, defence a little bit sturdier and is kind of another very typical Mourinho defender. I think Fabregas is huge. Because, um, I mean, if you compare that, that central midfield too now, it's Matic and Fabregas. The company major are very well, are very mobile. One kind of ranges all over in front of the defence. The other actually has a fair bit of nuance about him. And it's much better than what was a pretty flat John Obi Mikel and then an aged Frank Lampard. And then beyond that, there's Costa. Um, and for all the debate about how much Costa will score, although he has looked good in preseason, I think the real key of Costa is that he's a very typical Mourinho striker and someone that kind of is willing to put his back to goal, work an awful lot, and kind of allow other attackers to come into the game, which is always kind of the role Drogba played. I mean, if you, if you remember actually Drogba in Mourinho's first two seasons, he didn't actually score that much at all. And it was only in 2006 or seven that he started to kind of, you know, properly hit over over 20 campaign. But beyond all that, I do think there is some a lot of truth in the idea that actually Mourinho's team is doing improve in their second season. Um, and if so, I mean, if you go right across his career, the the only season in which they didn't, in which there wasn't a kind of market improvement in what they won, was actually a second season at Chelsea. But they stuck. I think they won the league even easier that season. It was like it was wrapped up much earlier. It seemed a foregone conclusion much earlier. Um, as regards why it is, I suppose I think you know last season might provide some examples in that. You know, he, he tries to condition the team to his level of intensity, which is no is something that can, can often be unsustainable. But, but after the first year, he can get rid of those players either unwilling or unable to kind of meet it and kind of bring in a few of his own men. And I think players just understand a little bit more as well. I mean, like last week, we talked talk to a few of the Porto guys last week, like um, Ed, uh, Costa and Vitor Bahia, or George Costa and Vitor Bahia. And, you know, they were saying about how he kind of sets this certain standard, which you, which you eventually reach which you, you eventually realise you have to meet. So I think, I mean, ultimately, and then if you include Courtois coming in for check as well, that's pretty much an improvement in all areas, provided, of course, we do see this trend continuing of um, his teams improving in that second year. Miguel, the way you describe Cesc Fabregas, I think, and the impact he'll have in a playing sense is uh, really valid. I think it's absolutely superb signing and it doesn't really, I don't think supporters care how much or how little is spent on players if they're, they're going to improve the team. But just in terms of his own mindset now, I wonder would you have any misgivings about how much fire he still has in the belly? He's a relatively young player. I mean, he's still got, technically he should still have a good few years left, but he's been on the go since he was about 16 at this level. And the way it worked out at Barcelona, he could have been a bit of a frustrated figure towards the end there. Would you have any concerns? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, like, I did a piece in this yesterday, actually. Um, kind of had to look at kind of the stats of Chelsea midfield and what he'll bring. But I, mean, they, I think the huge thing with, um, with Fabregas, as you mentioned there, Mourinho's going to return him to that kind of all-action role, the seven, as Mourinho calls it, that, he had, that Fabregas effectively had at Arsenal between, say, 08 and 11. And, I mean, Fabregas is absolutely brilliant there. I mean, if you even, even look at it, his stats alone, let alone actually watch the football he was playing at that period, they're incredible. I mean, all his true balls, his assists... They all they were better than David Silva's were in a number ten role last season, which which, which I think says a lot. Um, and that was Fabregas at absolute peak. That was when Bar- that was what moved Barca to sign him. Other than of course all the connections Fabregas had, and that was when he was seen as perhaps the long term heir to Xavi in in that specific role. But the weird thing is, he never played there for Barcelona. He went further forward, and we've kind of just seen this. Odd regression in his career. I mean, there's all there's been these hints that he, that he's still this player, but um, you you would wonder what kind of effect that has. And also, after three years out of the role, 
how quickly he can recover his best in it. I mean, I think there, there, there could be an adjustment period there. But it's it certainly, for a player that had such talent, that had all this kind of, uh, so many dimensions around him with the whole Barcelona return, it is pretty remarkable how, how it turned out like that for Fabregas. As we know, I mean, his, his trouble at the club obviously went, went further than last season. Last summer, um, even though it never transpired, the, the move to United was very possible. Mm. Well, this is why I have a couple of misgivings. Because, I mean, there are, you know, I know that what you're saying, his, his uh, production, that's to use a, a kind of Richard Scudamore type word, was unbelievable in his last three seasons at Arsenal. Um, but does Richard Scudamore want him in the league, Ken? I don't know. Well, I don't know. This is the question. If, if uh, you know, we, we, if Cesc Fabregas was going to add value to the brand of the Premier League to the degree that Jose Mourinho was hoping for, would Barcelona have let him go for the price that they did? I mean, I, I, I just wonder why it is that Barcelona decided, no, this guy, no. Even though he, you know, he, he grew up here, he knows exactly what we're all about as a club, he obviously has quite a good on-field connection with Lionel Messi, um, you know, and he's of an age where he could succeed Xavi in our midfield, you know, and he's and he he's coming into what should be his peak years as a as a player, but no, we're going to sell him for thirty million euros and uh, and get someone else. Why would they do that? There must have been something, and I'm not. I, I don't know if it's entirely based on what he did in the field, but there must have been some reason they decided we can do without this guy. Well, I think first of all, once Guardiola left, uh, and there was this kind of evidence split between the old regime and the new regime and believe that Russell is uh, alleged to have, not on, to have not got on very well with Guardiola Fabregas was very much seen as a Guardiola man and suddenly that for the time being that cost a lot of money they didn't specifically need right then and I think a lot of problems stemmed from that and even though that, that, those weren't ultimately the reasons that, that Fabregas left I, I think they created more issues um, I mean, I th- that's one of the reasons why he never got to play in that Xavi role because Xavi was obviously still there at the time. And it was almost like Barcelona signed him two or three years too early. But I think it kind of evolved from that as well. I mean, uh, my personal feeling is that we, Barca realised that although he, maybe in, in terms of an English perspective of, a, of what a midfielder is, he would seem like such an obvious fit for, for Xavi's role. But they're actually kind of slightly different players. Fabregas does like to break forward much more. He, he is much more active going forward. And he doesn't kind of sit in control in the same way that, that Xavi does. He's a little bit more reckless. And I think while that maybe suits Chelsea, because they're perhaps trying to get him to replicate the kind of Frank, Frank Lampard 2005 role, where he, kind of, he doesn't just sit, but he breaks, he'll score, he'll create. Um, it didn't suit Barca. And added to all the other kind of issues, I would wager, and the fact that Barcelona also want to sign... Uh, other players in more important positions. I think he just became dispensable to them. I noticed another player who I wouldn't describe as, as indispensable, I don't think, to Jose Mourinho, Fernando Torres, is still there. I mean, he's yeah. still, <laughs> still plugging away. Are we going to have another full season of Jose Mourinho publicly ridiculing his striker? <laughs> well, I would say, um, see, though, if, from what, I've, what my understanding is, uh, even though they will not admit it publicly and, and you won't hear Mourinho say it unless, of course, a deal is done, they have been quote-unquote, open to offers uh, for Torres. Um, and also, I know for a fact that there, there has been relative contact between um, Edison Cavani's camp at Paris Saint-Germain and Chelsea, and that he would be seen as someone they would like to bring in because of the pace he offers if they could manage to shift either a foreign player or perhaps more specifically Torres. But so far, I don't think there's, there's about any deal that's been particularly attractive to 
to Chelsea. They certainly don't want to send them on send send them on loan in that sense, particularly um, after the experience with Romelu Lukaku. So un- unless there's some big shift, unless uh, Atletico Madrid um, take the punt, I can't really see it. I'd, I'd imagine he'll he'll persist with the strike force of uh, Diego Costa, Drogba, and then Torres in behind. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're going to have to pay Torres to go away at the end of all this because and I don't see why they don't just do it because they've actually um, taken more money in in sales so far this summer than they've spent, which is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, their their business usually is quite canny, but then I said, I mean, even if you go back to kind of, although Manny disagreed with it, but it did allow him to reshape a squad with a player he didn't particularly want the Juan Mata thing and David Luiz. There, there is a, a canniness to Chelsea, but then I suppose part of that is not just accepting um, you know, de- deals that suit in the short term just to get rid of a player. I mean, I think if you, if you look at a parallel and look at all the problems they have in the transfer market at the moment, look at the amount of times over the last few years United suddenly sold, or and Alex Ferguson in particular, suddenly decided to just get rid of a player, you know, who'd previously been a kind of a you know, first team stalwart we had no use for, and they suddenly went for cut price, whereas Chelsea have always actually sought to get a bit more value out of their deals. Yeah, Ken has a theory on, on this, on the. Uh, latest Jose Mourinho comments about how well, much he loves his club. Well, I, I'm wondering what you make of this, Miguel, because I, I know that this whole uh, issue of Jose Mourinho and Louis van Gaal's close friendship has <laughs> been um, has been a sort of a theme. And van Gaal, I mean, they actually are friends, or at least they certainly used to be. Yeah. Um, van Gaal came and spoke at a dinner for Mourinho uh, last season and said, this young man, what an amazing man he is. I used to think I was better than him, but now he's better than me, which is not something I expect to hear him Repeat. Mourinho also cried at that dinner. He cried, he wept, uh, crocodile yeah. tears of, of joy yeah. and, and malice. But uh, <laughs> when Mourinho says, I love my club, I love my club because they've bought me the players I want. They've given me the squad. They've given me the tools to do the job. I love these men. Uh, you know, all of these club officials. What a wonderful job they've done. And it's a great feeling as a manager to know you. your club has gone out there and done the business for you. I love these guys. Is there even how going to be asked? How much he loves his club? Do you think tomorrow <laughs> when he when he comes out to do his press conference for this for the Swansea game, given that the only players his club have signed for him so far are a couple of guys uh, who they were trying to sign, dating all the way back to the David Moyes era? Well, imagine Van Gaal might say he loves himself, given to the tone of some of the last three months. Um, but uh, he is an amazing man, stuff. though, Miguel. I mean, let, let's not forget that he's an incredible man. But. He, as he believes, I know he is. You know the record is there. He is a, a superb manager. What did you say? The um, his club haven't exactly done superbly in the market this year. So if you, if you take into account, particularly the fact that both Luke Shaw and and Herrera, the majority of the deals and negotiations on last season, then United haven't actually successfully brought through a, a transfer this summer, which is remarkable given what happened last year. And from what I've been told, there is a, a real element of agita- or agitation. He is getting impatient, uh, Van Gaal, with the, the lack of movements of art, that he expected to have more deals done, particularly in, cent- in, in, in defence. I mean, for all this talk about, oh, um, you know, he's going to assess the, assess the squad, then he'll decide him. And though, from what I've heard, he, he pretty much had made up his mind a few weeks ago. And, it, and this is the thing with Van Gaal. He's someone that once he makes a decision, he expects it to be acted on, which has not really been the case. Um, from what I've heard, he, he expected at least, in particular in defence, he expected at least two to be brought in before the season starts. And given that's 48 hours away, um, it, it, it doesn't exactly look, look likely. I mean, and, and there have been a few... He, all right, he hasn't kind of gone for it in the outspoken way that Van Gaal does. 
Uh, but there have been a fair few hints in, in, in some of his press comments about kind of unhappiness with how things have gone. You know, and also mentioned, even, even the way he talked about kind of a Di Maria type player. You know, this, this, uh, Van Gaal isn't exactly a man that's going to allow his reputation to be in any way tarnished because of the failures of others. So uh, I think if United don't start moving, I think some of his press comments could actually get uh, as interesting as ever over the next few weeks. Miguel, who's going to win the league? I have to say Chelsea, I think. Chelsea it is, OK. I, I know that uh, seems so obvious, but I suppose it's obvious for a reason. <laughs> True enough. Miguel, great stuff. Thanks, Mel. Cheers, thanks, Les. Yeah, I, I don't really see how Louis van Gaal cannot not be annoyed by uh, Woodward, really. Uh, it's uh, yeah. the, the one thing that you have from your chief executive. A nice working relationship is all very well and good. Getting on well would be nice, but you just wanted to buy a good player. Just buy some players. And that's why I think, I, I do wonder if Mourinho is, is being a bit provocative there, just talking about how great his club is. Because it just seems like the most obvious question in the world to ask. Do you, Louis? Love you. Jose Mourinho says he loves his club because they bought him all the players he wants. You know what are you? What are your feelings? Um, it seems like an obvious one to ask, um, but you know, uh, at least Louis Van Gaal is, is bringing some star quality to the league. You know, the league which is losing stars all over the place, um, <laughs> such as Luis Suarez. Not that this is overly concerning to Richard Scudamore. Um, He's the chief executive of the Premier League. I don't know if you saw his comments on. Yep. Um, essentially saying, I can't say, I'm sorry to see him go, says Scudamore of the double player of the year <laughs> and best player in the league. Uh, if you spend your time trying to promote what's good about the Premier League, you're always waiting for the next thing to come along. Um, he's an under- The next thing meaning Suarez's next outrage. Uh, there, there's a point when you can't just go on defending the indefensible. It's a three strikes in your out policy. Is it a three strikes? I've never heard of this three strikes in your head. No, I've never heard of one. Which is, you know, a a barbaric uh, judicial practice in in some American states, which has led to a lot of people languishing in prison for very minor offences for the rest of their lives. Uh, I had no idea the Premier League had had brought this in, Uh, although it would be interesting to see how how tightly observed it is. I don't know. I mean, I suppose his job is just to to say positive propaganda about the Premier League at any time, regardless of its relation to, to reality. I just, I don't see how losing a player like that improves the product, as he might call it. He argues that they, that the Premier League has lost plenty of players. We lost Becks. We lost David Beckham, he said at one stage. And his argument is that there's more depth, I think, in the English League, in the Premier League, than there is in terms of players. He reckons that they've got more of the top 50 players in the world than any other league, which... You, yeah, you, and none of the to top to say, ten. Yeah, not very all of the top ten players in the world now are playing for Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, and Barcelona. This is our second program today. We recorded a chat earlier on with, amongst others, Fiona Coughlin, Ireland's women's captain. She was uh, very, well, she was struggling really to come to terms of being knocked out of the World Cup so comprehensively by England yesterday. I think the whole thing came as a bit of a shock to the team. They thought they were pretty well set for it. She was very good to chat to us. So have a listen to that. Right now, we're joined by Rob Smythe, who is the co-author of Danish Dynamite, the story of Europe's greatest cult team. Rob, good to talk to you as always. Hello, yeah, nice to talk to you. The team, maybe before we get to how they became this, uh, this, as you say, the Europe's greatest cult team and uh, ultimately successful in 1992, maybe after the era had passed, can you take us back before then to the Danish team, maybe of the 1970s and how you would characterise them? Were they a happy team of, of boozers? Yeah, pretty much. I think they had a they had a coach who was kind of an easygoing, a popular guy called Kurt Nielsen, who ran his own bar. And um, 
there was a day when Frank Arneson and Sard Lerber, who went on to become great players, were called in for special training, and they kind of wondered what was going on. And basically, special training involved uh, like a five lunch and lots of beer, basically. Um, there was another game they got thrashed in Poland 4-1, and apparently the um, players were in expecting a real roller kick. And the coach had already arranged taxis to send them to a nightclub. So it was all pretty, I mean, it was very amateurish, both in um, in real terms and also in spirit. They didn't really have any expectations or anything. Ever quite. They, were, they were kind of always in the position that seems like San Marino finds us now. Rob, um, there was a certain amount of foreboding when the manager who was ultimately to preside over this era of success, Sepp Piontek, was appointed. Um, there's a line in the book, I can't remember who says it, but someone says, well, he was a German and you know Danes. What do they mean by that? Well, it just the, the, the felt like, it seemed like the ultimate clash of cultures, really. The, the image of German president Prebenelke, who went on to one of the great players of that side, had spent a year in German football and had a nightmare, basically. He couldn't handle the discipline or anything else. Um, and at the time... Even now, but particularly at the time, Danish football was kind of pretty easy going. They liked what they called the third half, which would be the socialising after the game. And I think they thought that Piontek would come in and just everything would be uh, discipline, discipline, discipline. And he would kind of completely obliterate um, the Danish kind of identity, which they which they always kind of wanted to be a part of the football team. And in fact, he kind of it took him a while, but he, his, probably his biggest skill was to find that balance to kind of introduce a certain amount of discipline and structure and everything, but to also let them be Danish to have their third half and everything else. He did um, do that thing we saw Giovanni Trapattoni do in Ireland when he arrived here. Well, he did a lot of different things for Trapattoni. I mean, he moved to the country, he married a Danish woman. It was, it was really very different. But he did string up a couple of guys early on to let the others know that he was serious. Yeah, beyond tech, yeah there was a guy called Bergie Jensen. He was a very good goalkeeper, actually. He um, played for Bruges in the final of the European Cup, and they lost to Liverpool at Wembley. Um, and he was a pretty eccentric guy, and um, I don't think he kind of cared much for for Piontek's way. And I think he was a kind of Piontek did use him as a symbolic sacrifice. He binned him. There was an in, one in Spain, which was a really good result at the time. But a couple of the players basically wouldn't go to bed. They were um, they were out drinking, and the Hotel foyer and Piontek said basically go to bed and they, there was an argument and they were pretty much never picked again. Um, and that was actually, it was interesting because that was the one area where people felt they were um, quite weak throughout, which was a bit harsh, but certainly that was a perception that we can go on. Yeah, he never went back to, to Berbiente at any stage. It didn't take Piontek then that long to figure out that, um, perhaps somewhat to his surprise, he had a squad which included several of players who had the potential to be the best in the world. Um, I mean, we'll talk about some of these guys individually, but is there any has has, has anybody come up with any theories as to how it is that a a small country of five million people, which I mean, there's various condescending descriptions of Denmark in the book. I mean, the English they're known for blue cheese and pornography and you know bacon and all this kind of thing. Suddenly, managed to produce this outstanding generation of players. I mean, what was happening there in the late fifties and early sixties? I I think as with most kind of collection of great players. There was a degree of chance it just happened. But I think probably the biggest advantage they had was that at that stage hardly anyone went abroad, whereas all Danish players went abroad at extremely young ages. Like Arneson and Lerby went to Holland, I think at seventeen. Um so I think they benefited from that, particularly particularly going to Holland actually. A lot of them ended up playing with uh Johan Cruyff and players like that. And I think they just had a kind of an advantage in terms of education that 
in the late 70s and mid-70s in particular, hardly anyone went abroad. Um, so if there was one single thing, I think it was that. Um, but as much as anything, I do think it was just a, there was just a big element of chance, really. The you mentioned Soren Larby there. Obviously, Michael Laudrup was the most noted genius in the side, and there were there were many great players. But there's a story you have about Larby involving the day that Denmark beat Ireland four one at Lansdowne Road, which maybe indicates how highly these players, the sort of esteem they were held, and he ended up playing two matches that day. He did, yeah. Bayern Munich, who he played for, had a had a cup game uh, that evening, and of course, in Ireland in those days, I think games kicked off in the afternoon of the week, so he played about sixty minutes. Um, then got straight on a plane. Um, and I think when he got there, actually, his car, when he got to, I think it was against Bochum, um, the, the car that was taking was stuck in traffic, so he ran the last couple of miles to the ground, and I think he ended up coming up in the second half of that game. Yeah, it's pretty... I mean, that, that wouldn't be allowed now, but it kind of, it's quite nice. It fits the profile of Lerby because he was just a, a ridiculously hard character. He never, ever wore any shin pads. <sighs> I really kind of enjoyed kind of flaunting his... Um, he man status, as one of the players put it. Uh, uh, Laudrup, who I mentioned, Iniesta, I think, has called Michael Laudrup the greatest player ever. He's is Iniesta's favourite player. There's Sid Lowe had a great story in his book of um, uh, Laudrup being pulled aside by the King of Spain when he was leaving Spanish football to, I don't know, quite, quite plead with him to stay, but it was something, uh, it was a nice moment along those lines. And th- this guy was a huge figure in European football at this stage. So was he, was he before he left the Danish setup, which we'll get on to, was he fairly beloved by Danes? Yeah, I think so. There's a, I think there's a degree of um, kind of almost coldness about him. I don't think... I think Elko was probably more loved because he was kind of overtly cheeky um, and had more kind of... a more obvious personality. But yeah, I think Laudrup is certainly regarded as Denmark's greatest player by a distance. The respect he has from his peers is, I, I think, almost unprecedented. On his Wikipedia page, you can see quotes from Romario and Stoichkov and just everyone basically saying he's the greatest player they played with. Apart from Romario, who said I put him in the top five of all time, just below me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, he was just. I, I, apparently, when he left Barcelona, I think Guardiola started crying when he heard the news. Um, it's really intriguing. I don't. I don't think I've ever come across a player who was adored to that degree by by people who played alongside. Uh, maybe it has to do with the fact that unlike uh, people like Romario, for instance, to, to pick a name at random, he. Didn't go around rubbing everyone's everyone else's nose in it about how much better than them he was. Yeah, he's a, he's an incredibly kind of modest character, really. Even when um when he was talking about that famous goal against Uruguay, he just kind of matter of factly said, "I don't think it's a very good goal." And with some people, you get the sense that it was just kind of false modesty. But with him, I think it's just the opposite. He just saw it in kind of kind of straight lines. It was actually I did this and I did this, and it wasn't that much to. But he does, yeah. He for someone who is so obviously kind of on another level in terms of his ability and genius. He's always seemed incredibly um, modest and just quite normal, really. We uh, have for, probably given it more publicity than it necessarily needs, but the 1986 FIFA official movie Hero, which, yeah, <laughs> I know you mentioned it as well, Rob. It's an incredible piece of work in a strange way, but it very much focuses on individuals, the hero in question being Maradona, but they do devote quite a long time to these long, lingering shots of Michael Lauder stroking the ball around and uh, De- Denmark winning their group games in 1986. Unfortunately, they ended up getting absolutely destroyed by Spain in the second round. Uh, what actually happened happened there? There are so many theories. I mean, the most common one, they were 1-0 up. Spain weren't a really particularly good side um, at that stage. And they were 1-0 up and playing pretty well. And then Jesper Olsen played an awful back pass just for half-time. Uh, Butcher Grader equalised. And in the second half, 
uh, Spain went on to win five one. I mean, the, the theory goes that that kind of shattered them that back pass, and it's quite e- quite a nice symbolic moment. But actually, they started the second half really were completely on top when Spain scored against them on a play. And it was only when they were two and down, they kind of panicked. There was still 35 minutes to go, but they pretty much just threw everyone forward. Piontek took off a defender, a bottom striker, and Spain just picked them off on the break. It was midday, really hot. The three defenders had a combined age of about 100, and they were just slaughtered on the counter. I mean, Piontek says the players were kind of, the Danish mentality had kicked in, whereby they'd already done enough by winning the death, as it was called. And it wanted so spectacularly, that was kind of, his argument is they thought, well, look, we can whatever happens now, we've had a good World Cup. They, the players mostly say they were completely overtrained by Piontek and that they peaked kind of halfway through the group stage and that they were absolutely shattered because they were training with um, oxygen masks and everything about a month before the tournament. So, I mean, there were kind of various series. I suppose as was always, it's kind of a combination of things. But it was a strange game. It was a really weird kind of 5-1 because even in the second half, Denmark had most of the ball. Spain just were just ruthless, really. And Spain became their nemesis. They beat them in the 84 European Championship semi-final on penalties, beat them in the 88 Euros, um, stopped them qualifying for the 94 World Cup as well. So they became their kind of complete nemesis. And this, this was before Spain were particularly good as well. I didn't know until reading this that to do a right Jesper Olsen was a Danish synonym for any monumental cock-up. Yeah, it was even mentioned in Parliament, a rig to Jesper Olsen, a real, I think it's a real Jesper Olsen, or yeah. a right Jesper Olsen. It's really, it's really yeah. sad. Is it? I mean, he ended up leaving Denmark. I mean, I don't know if he left Denmark specifically to get away from that, but I wonder if this is in Stephen Gerrard's future. <laughs> well, the thing is, he, like, they joke about it, but he ended up in Australia. Yeah. Uh, he had to go to the other side of the world. But it was a huge problem, and it, it's a bit harsh, because when he, as well as being an amazing player who did so much for Denmark... The fact is, the game, there were so many other reasons why they lost that game. They could easily have helped you missed two great chances that would have put them 2-1 up. And so it's a bit hard to focus just on that. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, the manager, as you mentioned, Piontek playing the Danish mentality, although one of the players is replying to him in the book, said, well, look, the thing is, that if, you, if you're training for two weeks really hard, or two months really, really, really hard, not drinking, then you have two pints, you suddenly... In, in, immediately drunk and you start laughing and joking. He he thought we were he thought we were, we didn't care, but actually yeah, we were just exactly. unbelievably drunk. Um, the man, the manager was complaining though about the Danish mentality a couple of years later when he resigned in the kind of tax scandal, which is it would literally have been unthinkable in Ireland. Um, maybe you can explain what what ultimately happened to Sepp Piontek. Yeah, so basically. He stayed in for a bit and failed to qualify for the next World Cup because by then the team had dwindled. Most of the, the players from the uh, mid-80s had retired or were past their best. And then there was a, a tabloid story about him having a secret bank account in um, Liechtenstein, I think. Um, and essentially there was nothing in it. It was just um, muckraking for the secret, really. Uh, but he he basically kind of felt, I suppose, I don't know, felt like he'd been stabbed in the back almost and haven't done so much for Denmark. And he, at the time, he'd been offered um job as Turkey manager as well. And he, I, I suspect he might have wanted to go anywhere and use it as an excuse to quit, but it was it was all pretty unedifying because um as far as you can make out, there was nothing in it really. It was all perfectly legal and there were no, um nothing particularly dodgy going on. Rob, the team ended up winning a European Championship in 92, but would I be right in saying that the, that, that team is almost it's different from the side that you're talking about? You're talking about this cult favourite team, really, of the 80s. The 92 team was well, lucky to qualify um, based on what happened in Yugoslavia at that stage. They 
got in through the back door and while they weren't lucky to win that probably wasn't the great Danish team even though they're the ones who won a European Championship yeah, it's really interesting, and they often have this debate in Denmark, what's more important, the style of the 80s team or the success of the 90s team. There were hardly any players who were common to both, um, the fullback Henrik Andersen and a couple of others, but essentially they were completely different teams, and in style as well, because the 92 team played defensively and played on the counter-attack with Brian Laudrup and um, Fleming Poulsen, and they, yeah, they weren't even supposed to have qualified. Yugoslavia finished comfortably ahead of them in the group. But then, of course, they had to pull out because of the war or chucked out because of the war. But Denmark came in at like eight days' notice or something and went on to win it. It's a really strange postscript to the story. Um, I suspect that the 80s team is still slightly more loved in Denmark just because of the style with which they played. But, but it's a, yeah, it's an ongoing debate. I know Peter Schweiker doesn't really care much for people who say the 80s team were better. Yeah. yeah, it's just a really fascinating fact because they couldn't be more opposite, really. There were only a few years between them, but they were just like completely different identities. Uh, not least because the man who should have been the best player in the 92 team, Michael Edward, wasn't even there, having retired from international football at the age of 26. And, I mean, you, you talk about this in the book, Robin, you say that he was faced with a dilemma at that time. He joined Barcelona. He was, he was more or less the key player at Barcelona. That, that meant a lot of pressure for him. Uh, and because he was the last of his generation in the Danish team, he was the main man in this Danish team in, in a way, you know, a Danish team which wasn't as good as before. Everybody's looking to him again. So it was too much pressure and he couldn't do both and he chose to focus on Barcelona. There must have been more to it than that. I mean, if, if that was all it was, why did his brother, Brian, quit the team, at least temporarily, around the same time? Yeah, I think, as, I, I think it was an element of the responsibility. But the main thing is that he just didn't like playing football under the coach, Muller Nielsen. It was a pretty boring way of playing. He, like, he introduced new things like playing piggy in training, and there's a good clip of Laudrup kind of laughing at it, but you can tell laughing with contempt at the idea. Um, he substituted them both in a couple of games. And I just, Hang on, Rob, I sorry. Think, the, the coach wanted them to play... There was a game called Piggy in, that he introduced to training. I forget exactly how it was, but it's something pretty basic. I kind of think eight-year-olds do. I think, it's like, Laud- I think it's called Donkey in Ireland. I'm not sure. Oh, OK. But anyway, there's a clip of Laudrup. He kind of laughs at it. Hey, it's all part of the new regime, but you can tell he's laughing with contempt at the idea. And uh, I think Laudrup was always quite an idealist. I think, I think he just stopped enjoying playing football, basically, in that team. They were, they were a poor team, but also they were a defensive team. Um, complete contrast with Barcelona under Cruyff. And I think, yeah, I think he just got fed up, really. Okay. And then the same with his brother. His brother came back for Euro 92, whereas Michael didn't. But I think, I think it was the same thing. They just didn't like the football they were playing. All right, well, Brian is a European champion now and Michael isn't. I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if it hangs around his neck too much, but it's called Danish Dynamite. Uh, Rob Smite, listen, great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Nice insight there into the Danish mentality, um, Rob says. Rob, Rob doesn't seem to think the manager did a huge amount wrong. I don't think, uh, what's his name, Sepp Piontek? Sepp Piontek. Uh, he didn't... Piontek himself didn't feel he did a whole lot wrong. With the well, no, I mean, it was like, it's like, like, I mean, the whole thing was a little bit like what happened here in Ireland at the same time. We also had a coach from the larger neighbouring country come and change our attitude uh, to some extent. Uh, we, ha- we also had a gifted generation of players. And we also had this big outburst of nationalist fervour where the players uh, and particularly the coach uh, suddenly had lots of commercial opportunities of the type of the type that uh, even ten years previously wouldn't have, wouldn't necessarily have happened. I mean, remember all Jack Charlton's little earners? You know, he was always doing ads for this and that. Shredded wheat would be a big yeah, one in my mind. Yeah, shredded wheat and, and what? I mean, he was he was 
you know, opening supermarkets and whatever, you know, whatever it was. I don't know if Jack Shelton had, had an account in Liechtenstein. It's quite far away. Seth Piondek, on the other hand, was from Germany. He opened an account in Liechtenstein just for his little earners. You know, we're just talking about a lot of money here. But, of course, in Denmark, Denmark is, is the world's most egalitarian society. I mean, it's the world, it's the lowest income inequality in the world. And it's largely because of things like everybody pays their tax. They take that kind of thing quite seriously. They have something called the law of Yante. It's not just in Denmark. It's in all of these Scandinavian countries. And it comes from a, uh, a novel uh, written in the 1930s uh, by a guy called Axel Sandemos, who's a kind of half Danish writer. And the law of Yante is essentially this, oh, yeah, you think you're... Well, I'll, I'll tell you what it is, and I'll give you the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah. The Ten Real Estate, one. You're not, you're not to think you're anything special. Two, you're not to think you are as good as we are. Three, you're not to think you are smarter than we are. Four, you're not to convince yourself that you are better than we are. Five, you're not to think you know more than we do. Six, you're not to think you are more important than we are. We here being the community, you know, the everyone so else. It's not mostly, it's not all just one commandment? Seven, it is basically is, yeah. Seven, you're not to think you are good at anything. Eight, you're not to laugh at us. Nine, you're not to think anyone cares about you. Ten, you're not to think you can teach us anything. So the idea here is that the community um, doesn't like people who suddenly get airs and notions and think they're better than everybody else. They really don't like that. And they'll cut those people down to size. Um, and there is an 11th rule. Perhaps you don't think we know a few things about you. Which is to say, <laughs> if you do start to step out of line and, and kind of start uh, prancing around and uh, flashing cash and uh, boasting about your success, then... Uh, your tax affairs better be in order. <laughs> don't be surprised if your tax affairs end up in the newspaper. Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic's massive popularity in Sweden probably has a lot to do with the fact that he spent his entire life breaking every single one of these rules and they just love him for it. Uh, uh, you know, he's just, he just rises above all that Scandinavian false modesty and self-loathing and swaggers around and they think at last somebody acting the way we really want to act. Well, this is all very lofty. You've got to dumb this down a little bit by playing Denmark's They Had a Crappy World Cup song like everybody else does. This was in 1986. Yeah. Yeah, it's enough of that. You don't like it? <laughs> I think it's it's no better or worse than a lot of other songs. Like I think it's still the biggest selling single in the history of Denmark. At least I think I read that in, in Rob's book. Um, the biggest selling single in the history of Denmark. Uh, different from our own equivalent, which was the, uh, you know, um, what you call it? Our 1990 World Cup song. Yeah. What do you call it again? How have I totally... I, 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 that. Really <laughs> weird. Uh, put him under pressure. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a bit different. For some reason, Kesarasra was in my head, but yeah. Put you hear the, the production there is very sort of treble heavy. There's a saxophone comes in. Frank Arneson actually does most of the singing in it. He's quite a good singer, mm. uh, Frank Arneson. Uh, we got further in the World Cup than they did, uh, although they scored a lot more goals and are remembered a lot more fondly by the rest of the world. That's the end of the show. Thanks very much for listening and do check out irishtimes.com forward slash podcast to listen to some of the other programs that we have for you thanks very much for this today thank you Ken thank you Owen follow us on Twitter at Second Captains uh, you can also fo- check us out on facebook.com forward slash Second Captains and do listen out to the other show we have out there today Fiona Coughlin we also had US Murph talking about Rory McIlroy amongst others 
and we look ahead to the All-Ireland Hurling semi-final, the second uh, semi-final this weekend. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 